for every child I can feel the father's love awakening all the wild this is revival we want revival I can hear the spirit's voice calling us to be one I can feel the spirit's fire illuminating us in the sun this is
great crowd that had gathered heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd praised him, celebrated his miracles, and with great expectation told everyone about him. for someone who would rule with strength and might, but he came as a humble servant, 
They were expecting a general who would crush their enemies. But he came saying, love your enemies. They wanted him to finally bring their people glory, but he wanted to change them so their lives would bring God glory. They would soon realize that Jesus wasn't gonna be what they wanted, and they turned on him before they ever realized he was what they needed. And as they yelled, crucify, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus answered, I am not that kind of king. His kingdom isn't what you see here. It won't be established by chaos and war. His kingdom is in our hearts. His kingdom is righteousness, forgiveness, and love. Today, we lift our voices. We cry, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Come dwell in our hearts, Jesus Christ, our King. Good morning, everybody. Would you stand? We're going to worship that king. Is he king? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? If he's king, it looks different today. Our entire lives look different if he's actually the king of our lives. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness from fall Things 
his grace we wrote my story. our testimony that you are the king over all of us. You're the king over our hearts. You're the king over our lives. You're the king over our minds. We want to give you everything that we can because you own it all. Father, we say Hosanna. We say hallelujah. We say these words and we know that you are here right now. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. You guys have a seat. a question that's going to echo through this whole service here together. Who do you say that I am? It's just going to kind of linger over this whole thing, and we just, we're, we're going to just keep coming back to it, keep listening to it. Even as we go through the rest of the worship service, we're going to keep coming back to this question. Who do you say that I am? Now, before we get there, have you noticed, have you noticed that over time, our perspectives of people drifts towards neutral, all right? I think it's true about you. I think it's true about your friendships. I think it's true about all sorts of things. I think it's best and most easiestly, that's not a word maybe, maybe it is. Uh, it's, it's seen in the context of our, our presidents, all right? Uh, presidents oftentimes, when they're, in, when they're in office, you have uh, people who just think that they're incredible, that no matter what they do, they're perfect, they're awesome. And then at the same time, you have people who think that they're absolutely awful and they can't do anything good, right? That's kind of what it is. But once they get out of office, over time, it seems like both of those groups kind of drift back towards neutral. You ever notice that? And it takes time, it's not immediate, all right? But decades, sometimes centuries, <laughs> sometimes centuries later, we look back at them and we realize that they weren't completely perfect. There were some things they did that weren't always awesome. And some people recognize that they weren't completely awful, that there were some things that they did that were kind of good, all right? And so it just kind of drifts back to that neutral. And that's just normal for humanity, all right? That's, that's how people view you. That's how people view me. That's how we view others outside of us, right? There's just kind of that reality that over time we kind of drift back to that neutral. I think this is similar or some, something similar happened with Jesus. Not completely true, not completely in that sense, but something similar happened with Jesus. We have an understanding of who Jesus is that's based off of time after his life. In the moment, there were perspectives, but afterwards, after his death, after his resurrection, which is really key, after his ascension into heaven, the perspectives of who he is shifted some. And it wasn't so much that they changed what they believed, it's just that they began to understand the things that he said. It didn't make sense in the moment. There was complication in the moment. It made much more sense. In fact, you can look at the New Testament writers. 
as they, as they write out, you can almost get this sense that as they're looking back, they're writing decades after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. They're looking back, and they're able to put things together that didn't make sense in the moment. They're able to put these pieces together and comprehend what Jesus was doing, what he was saying, that in the moment they struggled with. There's things like this. Jesus would sometimes do things, and he looked like a normal man. There were other times that Jesus would do things, and he seemed supernatural. He didn't seem like a normal guy. He seemed like there was something more going on, something special about him. There were times when Jesus would say some things, and it seemed like normal things. I mean, he might rile people up. He might test or challenge someone, but that was just kind of normal human behavior. But there's other times that Jesus would say things, and it seemed supernatural. There were times when he would speak, and people would say he speaks with a different kind of an authority. He speaks differently than anything else we'd ever heard. I mean, there's this struggle of who Jesus was. Who do you say that I am? That's the question he asked. What was he? Was he this man or was he this, this God? It's kind of strange. And even we tend to pick sides on that. When we ask this question, do you see Jesus more as man or do you see Jesus more as God? You probably pick a side. There's probably a Jesus that you're more comfortable with. Are, do you find yourself uh, you know, liking the man Jesus. You like the teaching. You like the practical things. You like the way that he lived and treated people and all those kinds of things. Or do you find yourself drawn to the God part of Jesus? Do you find yourself, uh, you know, fascinated with the miracles or the incredible things, the supernatural things that he did, the superhero kind of things that he did that you can't explain? Which one of them do you resonate with and which one are you drawn to? And even then, even then as we, as we look at him in those kinds of terms, we have to go back to what well, if he is a God, what, what kind of a God is he? Was he a good God? Or did he do it poorly? Was he a failure? If he was a man, did he do that well? I mean, some people think that he was a really good man, a really good teacher. Other people think that he was a fool, that he was pitiful. And all of these stories kind of make it complicated for us. It, it kind, of, kind of makes it hard for us to understand and be able to display specifically say who this Jesus is. What I want us to do today is I want us to look at Jesus in the moment. I want us to set aside our knowledge, our ability. To, most of us kind of know the full story of Jesus. We know where this goes. I've already mentioned the future parts of him and, and his death and his resurrection, the ascension, right? We know where some of these things are going to go, but I want us to kind of pull back and I want us to look in the story, in the moment. I want us to appreciate kind of the disciples' perspectives of what it was like to live with Jesus and to experience these things with him as they were happening. Because I think it's going to give us some insight that's really valuable for us even in this moment, okay? There's this sequence of stories that starts in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, where we started with this question. It's the same question that we're going to be hearing all morning long. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks that question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Now, I think you should know that this is maybe the most important question you'll ever hear. Like, very literally, I think that this question has the most impact on your life in every place, in every part of who you are. How you answer this question, I'm not even telling you how to answer it. I'm saying how you answer this question will impact how you think, how you talk, how you live, how you treat people, the, the decisions you make within your family, within your career, within all sorts of contexts. How you answer this question, who do you say that I am, impacts absolutely everything. So when Jesus asks this question to the disciples, this is kind of a watershed moment in Scripture. This is a huge 
moment in Scripture as Jesus lays it out. He kind of throws this softball out for someone to respond to, and Peter responds beautifully. He answers very simply in Mark chapter 8. He says, you're the Christ. Except that it, there's, there's more to it. There's some other things, like in the, in the other Gospels, they, they refer to the same story, and they say that, that, Mark, or that, that uh, Peter didn't just respond with, you're the Christ. He also said, you're the Son of the living God. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, which means, what, what does that mean? What did he mean by those things? Because there's lots of different ways that you can even interpret what it is that Peter said with this simple statement, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did he think that he was a king? I mean, there was this belief, there was this expectation that God was going to bring about this Messiah and he was going to be a very normal kind of a man. He was, he was going to be a person, right? He was going to be human, but that he was going to have this ability to kind of draw the nation together. He was going to unify them and that they were going to go up against those who oppressed them and they were going to be able to attain their own freedom, their own independence. And there was this idea that they were going to be able to go and do this together. Was that what, is that what Peter was alluding to? Is that what he was saying? Was, was maybe Jesus something more? Maybe Peter saw him not just as a human, but as, as kind of having some supernatural abilities. Maybe he would have seen him in line with, with some of the prophets of the Old Testament, right? Like, like he had something special going on, but he was just a man. Or, or did Peter actually make a statement here claiming that Jesus was God? I mean, he says you're the son of the living God. Does, Je does Peter actually mean that Jesus is actually God? What is exactly going on here? You can make a good defense for each of these things. You can make a good argument that Peter was saying either one of these three big ideas. We don't know exactly what he meant by these statements. But we know Jesus' response. Jesus hears Peter answer saying that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, correct. It's the right answer. Whatever it is that Peter meant by it, we're not real sure, but we know exactly that it was the right answer. We know that it was the correct thing to say. And so there's this moment where Peter seems to be riding high and everything's going good. He gets it right. And then just a few verses later, three verses later, Jesus is talking to Peter and these disciples and he tells them that he's going to be killed and that three days later he's going to rise again. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense on any of these. I mean, if Jesus is going to be the conquering king, it doesn't make sense that he's going to die. That doesn't fit with the plan. And if he's a prophet, if there's something significant coming, it doesn't make sense that he has to die. That doesn't fit with the narrative. That doesn't fit with what should be happening. And if he's God, that makes even less sense because God can't die, right? It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And Peter's stuck in this moment. He's trying to comprehend what's happened. He's just nailed this question so perfectly. He said it exactly what it's supposed to be. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, and now he hears that he's going to die, and he can't wrap his head around it, and so he, like, he argues with Jesus, which is a dangerous thing, right? He, 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 he pushes back. He tells Jesus this can't be the plan. It doesn't make sense. And so Jesus gives him a fun new nickname, Satan. Isn't that interesting? That in one moment he gets it right, the next moment he can't quite comprehend it, and he goes from getting the answer perfectly to now being called Satan. That quickly. Who do you say that I am? But hang on, this story gets even stranger. Less than a week later, we're told six days, but what I love is that in Mark, it's the very next passage, the very next thing that happens in Mark is this wild story. It's a story that we don't, teach or preach from very often because it's confusing and it's strange and it's complicated to work through 
But it's in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse, verse 2. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love this little piece of commentary here in the middle of it that Mark adds. He didn't know what to say because he was really, like, freaked out. <laughs> all right? The story's wild. Peter doesn't know what to do. He's, it's all strange. It says, then a cloud appeared. It gets weirder. A cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And I love this about Mark. Mark, it just kind of just flies through this story. Like there's so many questions about what's going on here. No one's around. It's just Jesus now. And the very next thing Mark says is, as they were coming down the mountain, like he's, he skipped so much there, right? As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. It's a strange story, right? It's very weird. It doesn't really fit many of our boxes. In this sermon series, we've been going through these different mountains, all right? In the first week, we talked about the mountain that we have to climb. We talked about the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 and the fact that Jesus lays out some kind of hard teaching of what it is to be a follower of his. And it's this challenging mountain that we're to climb, to attain to, to try to uh, be his followers. Last week, we talked about the Mount of Temptation. It's a mountain that we need to cross to go across, that sometimes temptation comes in and it tries to pull us away from our pursuit of Jesus, but we have to work past those things. We have to cross over those things. And then we have this one, this transfiguration. It's a strange story. And as we sit, as we hear it, with, with our ears and our culture and our time, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just kind of this strange thing that happens. But I want you to know there's tons of imagery in this story that while it may be missed on us, it is incredibly powerful for Jewish ears. When Peter, James, and John experienced this, they knew exactly what was happening. It was confusing. It was intimidating. They, they had a lot of things going on in their mind, but they knew what they were experiencing. They had, a, they had some level of comprehension of what it was because they'd heard this story before. The imagery here fits in the book of Exodus with a guy named Moses who's on Mount Sinai. In Mark 9, we see kind of a, a play off of that event where God was doing something. Mar or in Exodus, this is where God actually gives out his revelation to man. In Mark 9, he does the same thing. And it starts with this. Like one of the images is just a mountain. We see it in Exodus. Moses goes up on the mountain to be alone with God, to have conversation with him. We see it in Mark chapter 9, except that Jesus doesn't go alone. He takes Peter, James, and John. Another gospel account tells us that they went up there to pray not necessarily to go and have this experience, but they went up on this mountain to pray. There's a light. It's reminiscent of what we see in Exodus again. Moses would go up and have these conversations with God fairly regularly. They would have this interaction back and forth. And during one of those times, Moses asked God uh, if, if he, like he actually begged him, like, God, could I please just see your glory? Like, I don't want to see you. I just want to see the amazing whatever that exists around you, all right? Like, I just want to like catch a glimpse of your glory, right? And God lets him, and it leads to this really strange situation where Moses starts glowing, all right? 
there's this light that he sees and it's so significant, so powerful that it actually like somehow sticks to Moses and he takes on this glowing, his face glows, it's weird, all right? And he goes down off the mountain and it keeps glowing and it weirds everybody out. They're all uncomfortable by it. It's very strange, all right? We see something similar in Mark 9, that there's this light and it's dazzling and it's incredible and it's pure and it's powerful, except that there's a significant difference. In Exodus with Moses, we see... Uh, there's a sense in which Moses isn't the source of light. He's reflecting it like the moon, okay? There's a source of light. Moses experiences it. It kind of sticks to him in some way. He's glowing, but it's not from him. It's just kind of a reflection like the moon. That's not Mark 9. Jesus isn't reflecting light. He's a source of light. This light is emanating from him. That's a significant difference, right? Moses and Elijah are there, right? But they're they're not the source of light. It's not coming from them. It's coming from Jesus. It's a big deal. There's a cloud. We see it in, in Exodus. We also see it in Mark 9. In Exodus, there's a cloud that would sometimes have this voice that would come out of it. God would sometimes show his presence in the form of a cloud. It's, it's strange, right? And sometimes, most of the time, God would speak to Moses directly, but occasionally this voice would come from this cloud, and everyone would hear it, and everyone would be freaked out, and they'd be frightened. It was a terrifying thing for them to experience the same in Mark 9. There's a cloud, and the voice speaks from the cloud, and Peter, James, and John, they're terrified. They're freaked out, and they fall on their faces, one of the gospel accounts tells us. There's significance in who's there, Moses and Elijah. In the Exodus story, Moses is kind of a central figure. Elijah comes centuries later. They're not contemporaries, and so it's strange to pull Elijah into the setting until you kind of see what they, you know, why they're invited, I guess, if you will. Every, just about everyone who looks at this will agree that Moses and Elijah are representing something significant from the Old Testament. Moses is representative of the law. Now, in our Old Testament, when you open your Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the law. That's what a Jewish person would refer to those scriptures as, as the law. And Moses is the author of those. He's seen as this father figure for the religion, for the nation. He's seen as this person who, who brought the word of God to them. He's, he's a hero of their faith, all right? Really, really big, important person. There aren't many people in Judaism who would compete with the role that Moses has, has played for them. One of them would be Elijah. Elijah is viewed as the prophets, okay? So he was a prophet in the Old Testament, but he's the figurehead of the prophets. And when you look at the Old Testament, the first five books are the law. We have what we would call history and poetry in the Old Testament, but Jews would refer to the rest of it as just the, the prophets. You have the law and the prophets, and Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. It's a big deal that those two are on the scene. It's a big deal that these are the two who are invited to have this interaction with Jesus, all right? It's powerful, it's significant, it's important. But notice who's center stage. That even though we have Jesus and Moses and Elijah that are all there, Moses isn't center stage, Elijah isn't center stage, it's Jesus who's at the center of the stage. It's Jesus that has a light coming from him. It's Jesus that the voice speaks about. Moses and Elijah leave, but Jesus stays. It's a big deal, the statement that's being made here as these three are pulled into the same scene. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's past and he's the hope of Israel's future. Jesus would say that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's a big deal that they're there. And then this last piece, you have, you have the voice that comes from this cloud, which is really, really significant. In Exodus, God would only speak to Moses 
God would have these conversations with Moses and then Moses would take what God had said and he would go and share it with the community and the people. And the people loved Moses because he was this mediator between them and God and he's seen as this great father figure because of it. In Mark 9, it's different. In Mark 9, there's a larger crowd there. It's not just Moses, it's Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And you've got these three disciples. And when the voice speaks, he doesn't speak to Moses. And he doesn't speak to Elijah and he doesn't even really speak to Jesus. It seems like in this scene that the people that are being spoken to from this cloud directly are Peter, James, and John. The message, again, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I want you to catch how big of a moment this would have been for Peter, James, and John. They would have recognized all this imagery. They would have understood what it is that they were called up into. In their minds, there wouldn't have been any greater heroes to their faith than Moses and Elijah, who are gone long before they ever lived, all right? And so the fact that they're having this moment, this crazy, weird, strange story, where they're now seeing the heroes of their faith in front of them, and the message that they get isn't, look at these awesome heroes of your faith. The message is, this one is my son. We're talking about Jesus. He's the one. Listen to him. There's three giants on this mountain, but Jesus is in a different class, all his own. Before God gave Moses a message to tell the people, this time it seems like God has given these three disciples a message to tell the people. This is now the new pinnacle of God's revelation to man. Now, how would you have responded if you were there? Kind of a strange story strange situation. It's hard to imagine. If we look through scripture and we look at situations where these kinds of things happen, these kinds of stories happen, I think it'd be fair to say that you would be scared. I think it's fair to say that you would probably like fall down on your face. That's what the disciples did. I wonder if I would have passed out. I wonder how healthy my heart is and whether or not I'd had a heart attack. All right. Like, I wonder if, like, I'd feel like, like I was going to vomit. Like, like what's going to happen to me physically to be in a situation like this? What would have happened to me? How would I have responded? And then when you, we ask that question, I love every time I ask the question of how I would have responded if Peter's in the scene, because Peter shows me how I would have responded, all right? And it's usually wrong, okay? But Peter's in this situation. Peter responds by babbling. He just, like, starts talking and it's kind of like the foot in the mouth, the word vomit kind of a thing that happens. Like words just start coming out and it doesn't make sense. And in this situation, Peter says, let's go into construction, <laughs> which is a joke, all right? Like, it, like it's what he says, but it doesn't make sense. Peter's experiencing something here that he can't comprehend and he can't quite figure out what's taking place. But in his mind, it makes sense that this is a good thing and something good is happening here and we should stay here. Let's put up some tents. Let, let, let's make something to where we can just be in this place, where we can stay in this place. Let's take care of you guys. I don't want Moses and Elijah to leave. Let's take care of them where they can stay here. He's looking at the glory of God. He's looking at the heroes of his faith, and he doesn't know what to do, but he knows that he wants to do something. And I love that about Peter. There's a guy named Timothy Keller who calls that worship. He wanted to do something. Timothy Keller calls that worship. In a book that he wrote called Jesus the King, he writes about this scene, and this is what he says. He says, when the cloud comes down, not only do the disciples not die, which would have been normal for anyone who comes into the presence of God, but they are surrounded and embraced by the brilliance of God. They hear God the Father speaking 
of his love for his son, just as he did when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of Mark. And then suddenly a cloud goes away and they're left standing there blinking in the comparatively dim light on the mountaintop in a state of electrified wonder. James, Peter, and John have experienced worship. And I love this definition. Worship is a preview of the thing that all of our hearts are longing for, whether you know it or not. Have you ever had that? Have you ever worshiped like that, right? Where you didn't even know you were longing for something, but something resonated with you in such a way that you were just kind of filled with this moment of spirit? That's what happens to Peter, James, and John in this story. It's so powerful. Something was awakened in them. Their own personal spiritness was satisfied, and out of that, they wanted to just stay in that place. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there before? Have you ever had that kind of a mountaintop experience? I mean, I hope you have. Can you remember a time where you didn't want to leave a place or you didn't want to quit a moment? Can you remember a time that you didn't want to end, like, like in the midst of worship or interacting with your God, that when it came to a close, you were disappointed? I mean, can you imagine going to church on Sunday morning and being upset when it was over? <laughs> kind of hard, right? I can remember a few moments like this in my life. I can remember times as a student going to camps or different conferences where I was invested in connecting with God and worshiping him and celebrating who he was. And I was doing it within a community of my friends and, and peers who were doing the same thing. And I can remember thinking, if I could only just stay here, if I could just live in this kind of a context for my entire life, I would be so close with God. I would love being able to just be in a place like this to be able to worship God. Have you ever been there? You ever had an experience like this? I hope you have. I mean, I can remember moments of worship in my life when I was disappointed when it was over. I'm not the most musical person, but there's been times when I've wished that the music would just keep going. I mean, I really hope that you experience something like that here, you know, at least from time to time. My hope is that you would come in here on a Sunday morning and that you would you would sense that the Spirit of God is here in this place so significantly that you feel like you don't want to leave. I mean, how cool would that be? And I wonder if maybe that's what actually happened at Asbury here recently. I wonder if some students interacted with God and they didn't want to walk away, and so they didn't. They, they put up tents in a way. They decided to just stay in that place so long as they perceived that the Spirit of God was there. And if you haven't had a moment like that in your life, man, I pray that you will. I pray that this morning could be one of those moments for you. But there's this question that just keeps lingering. There's this question that just keeps lingering through this whole thing. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus God or is he merely man? And you look at this story, you look at this story of, of, of the transfiguration, and it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? I mean, this seems like a big moment. This seems like one of those scenes where Jesus just makes it obvious for everybody to see that he's God. I mean, he has a voice from heaven. He's shining light. Like, it's a pretty big deal. He makes it plainly obvious that he's something more than just man. He's very clearly God, except, except that the whole thing goes away, and he looks like Jesus again, and he walks off the mountain. I mean, is he God or not? 
Is he really God or is he not? What's going on here? Moses and Elijah leave. The tents go up. The cloud disappears. Jesus looks like normal Jesus. And they walk down the mountain. And as they're doing it, Jesus says, hey, keep this to yourselves. Don't tell anybody what you've experienced. And I think it's because Jesus is God. But I think it's also because he's man. And they walk down the mountain. They continue living in this ambiguous mixture of spirit and flesh. And because we've already started to see a pattern, you're going to see it again here. While they're walking down the mountain, Jesus doesn't just tell them to keep it to themselves. He also tells them, hey, by the way, I'm getting ready to suffer and be rejected. One moment. One moment, Jesus is light. And the next moment, he's pointing out how he's going to die. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. I mean, Jesus, if you've just revealed your God, how are you also going to tell me that you're dying? It doesn't make sense. It has to be one or the other. God can't die. This doesn't work. And I hope that as you look at the story, you can see Peter and the disciples and their struggle with this. Can you imagine being in the moment and wrestling with this reality? It doesn't make sense. It seems like Jesus is God, and then it seems like Jesus is going to die, and it doesn't make sense. And the story takes another turn. The very next verses in Mark 9, Jesus and his three disciples get to the bottom of the mountain. They rejoin the rest of the disciples where a large crowd is gathering around them and a boy is presented to them with an evil spirit. And a fascinating interaction takes place. Jesus has a conversation with the boy's father and the father's asking him to heal and the father makes an awful mistake. Okay? He, I, I don't know if it was on purpose. I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know what exactly happened, but the father says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus calls him out. Jesus makes a big deal about it. Jesus rails on that word if because this question is just echoing in the background all the time. Who do you say that I am? Is he God or not? Can he do it or not? And there's this response that I think is so powerful. I think I think this is one of the most honest and transparent responses that you'll see in all of Scripture, and I think it's powerful for us. And in fact, I think this is something that we can pray. The Father looks to, to Jesus and he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That fits, doesn't it? We've been looking at all these stories, and there's a sense whenever you're reading through these tough stories in the Gospels, it's good to ask the question, where am I in this? And there's an aspect where we look a little bit like Peter, James, and John, right? Like we're the ones who are just observing and we're trying to figure this whole thing out. But I love the Father in this story because I know for a fact that's me. I know for a fact that's where I've been. I know for a fact those have been my prayers. And I see myself in this story. I see myself face-to-face with Jesus. And I feel like I know who you are, but sometimes I'm just not sure. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Jesus heals the boy. An interesting conversation happens. The disciples don't understand how Jesus healed him because they'd been trying and they couldn't do it. They can't figure out. And so they're asking Jesus, how did you heal this child when we couldn't? And it seems like Jesus is God. It seems like Jesus is revealing himself all the more. This is what's happening, right? Except then you guessed it. It's the same pattern immediately following this. Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be betrayed, killed, and after three days rise. Sounds like Jesus is human. It sounds like he's a man because God can't die, right? constantly back and forth. Who do you say that I am? A question 
is hard to answer. And the target seems to be moving. It seems like Jesus has his feet in both places. He moves back and forth from spirit and flesh. He moves back and forth from God and man. And here's what we believe. We believe he is God and man. We believe that he's both. And that's a really easy thing to say. It's a really complicated dichotomy of spirit and flesh. It's really hard to explain. Because there's going to be moments like Asbury. There's going to be moments in our life where you experience the godness of Jesus in such a way that you can't help but want to worship and stay in that place. You don't want to leave, and it's a beautiful thing. It's worship on top of the mountain, but there's also moments of simple service. There's moments that are seen by no one else, and it's hard to see, and it's hard to believe, but Jesus is right there in those moments as well. Moments as simple as caring for a sick child like what Jesus does in Mark chapter 9. You see, we think worship only takes place on the mountain, but worship took place with that sick kid as well. Because Jesus is both God and man. He's present in both our highs and our lows. Worship takes place in both locations. He's on the mountain, but he's also in the valley. Do you understand that? Do you understand that Jesus is at Asbury, but he's also at your house? Do you know that he's here at Capital City Christian Church this morning, along with every other church in town? Do you understand that he's also at your workplace tomorrow morning? And both are opportunities for worship. He's in your car in the middle of traffic. That's hard to believe. He's also on a hike in the beauty of nature. Every location, every moment is an opportunity to find Jesus and to respond to him in worship. Worship takes place in our spirit and it takes place in our flesh as well. And so feel free to follow Jesus off the mountain because he doesn't stay there. Don't be fooled. It doesn't mean that he's not God. It means that he's God and that he's also flesh, that he sees us in our moments where we're at as well. You need to see his godness in the midst of his humanity as well. In the midst of our humanity, we can see his godness. He's there with us. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. And it'll be complicated. And there will be moments of belief and there will be moments of unbelief and you'll ask him to help you in your unbelief. It's a beautiful, worthwhile prayer. Maybe, maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe it's time for you to make a proclamation about what it is that you believe about this Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to stand in front of your peers and demand, declare that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God that he is God, but that he's also flesh, that he's man, that he walks with us and among us even to this day. If you've got a decision, if you want to have that conversation, I'll be right up here up front. We have an elder in our prayer room. We've got someone that'd love to talk to you about it after our service back in the connections room. Let's wrestle with that question this morning. Who do you say that I am? Jesus. When the life I built 
him crash into the ground when the friend dies and nowhere to be found
because you are king. I'm not able to give you enough. I'm not able to give you enough. But I'm so grateful for that that when you say, what I have is enough. It just gives me so much hope. Thank you for the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. If I had a thousand tongues, a thousand lives to give to you, Father, it still wouldn't be enough. We're so grateful that you take these meager offerings that we give to you and you find it good.
for a second because I know you're probably tired, but we're about to go into this time of communion. I want you to be really rested and ready to listen to what God might have to say to you as we sing these words, as we say these words, as we listen to his word, and it speaks to us and changes us. We believe that there is a power that is there when we let God be king, when we let Jesus actually be the king of our lives. It changes everything, and we don't want to just sit in there and be surrounded ourselves with, with people that already believe the same way that we do. We have a responsibility. We have a job to do to be this light to the world. They need to see what it looks like that even in the, in the, on the mountaintop that he's our king and in the valleys he's our king. So we're going to reset a little bit today as we go to the tables in a few moments and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. What it took for us to be a part of his family in the kingdom of God. So every time that we gather together, we take communion together. It is our family meal. And it's a way to remember that Jesus Christ sacrificed everything for each of us. When you take the bread and the juice, this is a way to remember that his body and blood were both given for us. At the tables, you're going to find both of those elements. And you also find a way that if you call this place your home and you want to give an offering, you can do that in the black boxes. We do this really strange thing called the generous buckets here. I've never seen it in any other church. It's cool because it goes outside of what your typical offering is going to give. You say, I got a couple extra dollars I want to give to people in need in this community. That's the place to put it too. So now that you've had your respite, go ahead and stand back up. Let's go to the tables and remember these thousand hallelujahs that we give to God.
Amen. If you'll be seated for just a moment. Is he yours? Because you are his, and I hope you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. My name is John. I'm one of the ministers here if we haven't had a chance to meet. We're just glad that you took time to be with us today to join us for worship. I hope that today's the start to a great week for you. I don't know what God's got in store for you, but I know he's got something for you. And I hope that you'll have your eyes open and your ears attentive to what he's got for you. Hey, a few things before we let you get out of here this morning. Of course, this is a, a big week for us uh, here in, in the church as we build up towards Easter next Sunday. And I hope that you're making plans now to be a part of that worship service with us. But before that, on Friday this week, uh, it's Good Friday. Uh, we've got uh, our, our first attempt, our first adventure into this idea that we want to invite you to come and be a part of. We're calling it From the Garden to the Grave. Now, it starts at 7 a.m. Friday morning, okay? I had, I had somebody ask me uh, this morning if this was a 13-hour-long worship service. You don't have to come and listen to Doc for 12 hours, okay? Now that, but, but we are going to start at 7 a.m. Friday morning. This is a walkthrough experience that you can do yourself. You can do it with your family. You can do it with uh, friends. You can do it with a group. You will do it at your own pace. We, we're estimating that it's going to take you maybe 40, 45, 50 minutes uh, to do this. And uh, it'll start over on the Student Worship Center side. Okay, again, the doors will open at 7. Uh, we'll have somebody there directing you how it goes. From there, you'll move into the worship center. Then you'll move up to the third floor. And at each of the different rooms upstairs, you will experience a part of what Jesus went through from the garden to the grave. And then we finish here in our adult worship center where communion will be available to you just as a time of reflection. And so we hope that you'll come and experience this unique look at what Jesus went through, what he went through for you and for me from the garden to the grave next Friday. But then it doesn't end there, does it? Now, we're going to come back on Sunday morning for a great day of worship as we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is no longer in that grave but is risen and is going to be here with us that day. And I hope that you're going to come and be a part of that with us. And uh, that day we're going to have three services. We've got 8 a.m., we've got 9.30 a.m., and we've got 11 a.m. And over, I don't know how many years now we've been doing this, we're going to ask you to do what? We're going to ask you to come early, come early, okay? We're going to ask you to park far, and we're going to ask you to bring one with you, okay? So come early. Uh, you know, m most, of, most of the time, if, if guests are going to come just because, you know, they, 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 they've heard about Easter and they want to come to church, they're probably going to come to maybe our 11 o'clock service, okay? So if you could come at nine, at 8 or come to the 930, over the last few years, our 930 has been our biggest one. But uh, So if you might even think about coming to 8 o'clock, we're going to have uh, full-staffed uh, children's ministry is going to be going on at 8 o'clock, so, so we've got places for your kids as well. But again, come early. Park far. Let's leave the let's leave the spaces around our building open for our guests and our elderly folk that need them. But if if you can walk, let's let's get a few extra steps in next Sunday, okay? Park far and bring somebody with you. And to help you do that, there's a card on the chair. There's even some out on the table. Take that card, okay? We didn't make them just to leave laying here so that Louis got to pick them up this week. We want you to take that card. Use that to invite somebody to come to church with you on Easter Sunday. Uh, you've heard us talk about this for years. People are really open and receptive to being invited to come to church. But you know what you've got to do? You've got to invite them, okay? So let's do that this week. Let's be thinking right now who God's going to put in our path that we can give one of these cards to. Take a couple of them. If everybody took two, we, we would, we'd be handing out 1,200 cards this week to encourage people to come and join us for church. Uh, 
excuse me, church next week. So take one of those cards with you, okay? And one last thing, uh, I think we have our getting started this morning in the connections room. I think Ben and Ben and or Doc will be there. If you're new to Capital City, you want to find out what what meaning what it means to get started in a relationship with Jesus. We'd love just five or ten minutes in the connections room, right out here in the lobby, okay? Hey, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great week, and I can't wait to see you this coming weekend. Let's get out of here. Let's go do something big for Jesus. Afraid of